Hey, if I have not had the, uh, the privilege of, of meeting you, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Substance, and I hang out usually with our Worcester congregation over there, those strange people over there. So it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, as Pastor Ronnie said, we're going to be wrapping up our 13-week series uh, in the book of Galatians by looking at verses 6 through 18 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible to follow along, there are always two options available to you. You can snuggle up with the person next to you, or there are Bibles on the back table uh, that we would love for you to keep if you don't own a Bible. And your neighbor next to you would probably appreciate if you just got your own Bible. You know, that's a little too close. Well, I hope that you all had a, a wonderfully thankful Thanksgiving. I know for many of you, the extra day off came at a much needed time. I know there was some sickness floating around and some exams and uh, some job interviews, interestingly enough. So I hope you got some rest. There's nothing more stressful than a job interview when you have to walk the razor's edge of boasting about yourself in a way that sounds humble and trainable, right? That's the idea of a, of a job interview. And, and thanks to, uh, to social media, all of life has really kind of taken on a job interview sort of feeling, has it not? Like this constant 24-7 pressure to package ourselves and to present ourselves in such a way that we gain the approval of those whom we most admire. I think Shakespeare was right when he said that all of life is a stage, all the world's a stage, and tragically, to get just a moment serious here, the one place on earth that that should be an exception, but in many ways is the example, is the local church. The local church being like this stage upon which all of us sometimes feel like we are auditioning or performing, packaging ourselves. I mean, it's, it, it's true. It, it was certainly true of the churches that Paul had planted throughout Galatia, the, the churches that he is writing this letter that we call the book of Galatians to after he left and the Jewish teachers from Jerusalem called the Judaizers, they came to town and they, and they quickly uh, changed um, these gospel havens, these gospel churches that were filled with praise for God and love for one another. It, they quickly became audition rooms in Galatia, filled with backbiting and competition, as we saw in chapter 5, all in the name of trying to earn God's approval. Last week in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, the, the first five verses of, of the last chapter, Paul began to remind the Galatian Christians of how they ought to relate with one another he urged them as he urged us to keep an eye out for one another. Not in a spirit of judgment or competition, but in a spirit of brotherly and sisterly affection. He urged that, that one of our fellow believers gets caught, when one of our fellow Christians gets caught in a pattern of sin, it is yours and my responsibility. It is our privilege to lovingly shoulder that burden with them and to see them restored in a spirit of, of gentleness. 
Kind of like a, a fallen runner whose teammate runs to their side and, and picks them up and brushes them off and then helps them to reset the pace to get them back in the race. This is kind of the visual that Paul has in mind when speaking of restoring a fellow brother or sister caught in sin. I love that God has seen it fit to make the Christian walk a team sport. This is the kind of love that is the summation of all of God's Old Testament law. It's the kind of love that identifies those who truly walk by the Spirit of God. When we love one another like this, when we shoulder one another's burdens, we begin to express the very sacrificial love that Jesus expressed on the cross when he died in our place. We've, we've just sung about it. And I am so thankful that God has seen it fit to make my Christian walk not a solo sport, but a, but a team sport, a community project. I'm so thankful for gospel friends who have been in my life, gospel teammates who have loved me with a spirit of gentleness. They've loved me enough to show me my sin to show me my sin, and then to patiently walk beside me, pacing me to get me back into the race of my faith. Aren't you grateful for those people in your life? But Paul's not finished showing us how we ought to relate with one another as believers in this church. There's more to the idea of being a gospel friend. There's more to the idea of this being a team sport. There's, there's, there's another way we are to bear one another's burdens, and it brings us to our passage this morning. But before I read this morning, I would ask that you would pray with me. God, what we are about to read is your word, and we thank you for it. Teach us, Lord, that we may know you more and transform us, Lord, that we may look like your son, Jesus, today, in whose name we pray, amen. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 to start out with. We'll walk through the, those, those verses and then we will continue on through the remainder of this letter. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if verses 1 through 5 is primarily about bearing one another's spiritual burdens in a spirit of gentleness, then verses 6 through 10 is primarily about bearing one another's material burdens in a spirit of generosity. 
There's no doubt that material generosity is in view for Paul as he pens verse 1. And the reason being is apparently that the Galatians were not only being influenced toward competing with one another in a sort of holy race, but they were being influenced away from supporting their local pastors. They were being influenced away from the generosity of giving food and and money and everything else that would have been appropriate at that time. And so the undertone here of verses 6 through 10 is really, it's Paul challenging the Galatians on their increasing, their frighteningly increasing lack of generosity. I mean, how on earth can the Galatians claim to be walking in the Spirit of God if they aren't even willing to physically support those who spiritually support them? Paul goes so far as to say in verse 7 that, that it's a mockery of God that will come back to bite them. It is a, a mockery to constantly claim God's generous benefits without ever growing in like generosity toward others. It's, it's a mockery. And Paul's lens widens in verse 10 to include not just pastors. Paul's lens he zooms out to include virtually everyone in our sphere of life. Let us do good to everyone. Let us bear the burdens of everyone we can, especially, church, those who worship next to us on Sundays, especially those who fellowship with us on Wednesdays or Thursdays when we meet in our community groups. James, the the brother of Jesus, has something to say about this theme. He says, what good is it in James chapter 2? What good is it if we say that we have faith, but we aren't even willing to supply material needs to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul in verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal corruption. Life, there's, there's an agricultural illustration taking place of, of like a farmer tilling the soil and scattering seed. He's working the field so as to produce something. The, interestingly, the Greek word that, that, the, that the ESV translates as corruption here, the flesh will, from the flesh will reap corruption, uh, it can also be translated as bondage, which is a theme that has been just pulsing through the book of Galatians, this idea of being bound under the law, bound by legalism, bound by our flesh, running rampantly into all sin, bound up in slavery. Last week, we saw how a lack of gentleness is the result of thinking too highly of ourselves, how we become slaves of of a superiority complex that now Paul's showing us that a lack of generosity is, is the result of thinking too highly of our possessions. We become enslaved to satisfying our own desires, feeding our comforts, accruing our excess, building our own kingdoms. I mean, I can't help but think of the cliche Christmas Ebenezer Scrooge when, I, when, when, I, when I'm reading through this passage. And 
to do diligence in, in, in really settling ourselves into these verses, verses 6 through 10, you know, one sobering exercise that, that we might participate in is, is to print out our credit card statements and, 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 and study our, our spending habits, what we're sowing to. What do our sowing habits and spending habits say about what we actually believe concerning the kingdom of the flesh and the kingdom of the spirit? Or maybe we should ask ourselves quietly, when was the last time we actually helped someone with a material need? When was the last time that we helped to bear a material burden? Are, are, are we even aware of some of the burdens that are present in this room or, or present in our community groups? Are we even aware? I ask myself, you know, what's keeping me from the radical generosity of the Spirit of God that we see Paul imploring us to? It might be that, it might be if you can relate with me, that I've never actually experienced for myself the truth of what Jesus says, that it is better, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It might be that we really don't understand Paul when he writes in the second half of verse 8 that the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit, they will reap eternal life. That every time we believe God enough, every time we take him at his word and we actually sacrifice for the sake of someone else, every time we do this, do we believe that we are in that moment storing up a glory that will one day be unleashed upon us with Christ. Do we, do we believe that? Do I believe that? You can almost hear Paul whispering to the Galatians, show me a believer who's marked by gentleness and generosity toward others and I'll show you a believer who's walking in the freedom and eternal life of the Spirit. Let's continue reading. Let's, let's go to verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. 
Amen. Remember with me that the Galatian Christians had begun to rally around a much different message than the one Paul had first preached to them. Remember, all the way back through through the whole letter, back to to chapter 1, it was under the influence of a group of Jewish teachers called the Judaizers that the Galatians began to believe that in order to be true Christians... They must not only believe that Jesus died and rose for their sins, but they must also perform certain rites of the Old Testament law, especially circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. To put this even simpler, what the Judaizers had been teaching in the churches of Galatia and what the Galatian Christians were starting to believe was that they essentially needed to finish the redemptive work that Jesus started on the cross on their behalf. By following certain rules, cherry-picked from the Old Testament law, they believed that they were somehow earning their forgiveness and right standing before God. Now, when we frame it like that, I assume that few, if any of us, would say, yeah, that's a tenable theology. That, that's what I believe. I would assume that few of us would, would actually say that, but, but shockingly, if we were to survey the landscape of 21st century Midwest American church, this is the theology This is what is preached from the pulpits and large. When I first moved to Worcester with my wife and kids, the first thing we did was go to Wadsworth so that we could eat at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. And we're sitting at Target and Costco. There's more there than just so. Anyway, we're sitting in Chick-fil-A and this this woman comes by and she sees us praying with my my kids. She's she's an employee of Chick-fil-A. She says, oh, oh, you guys, you're, you're Christians. Uh, so am I. Um, you know, this is what happened to me last year. I, I've been a Christian my whole life. I got into this horrible, horrible car accident, and as as my SUV was just ripping and and you know thrown all down the highway, I just cried out to the Lord, and this is what I said: Oh Lord, if today is my last day, let it be that what I have done is enough. To get me into heaven. Let it be that my works accumulated through all of my life will be enough to hit the mark so that I can be with you. And as I sat there and as I listened to this woman and, 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 and my kids, they're their mouths were open. They, they, had, they had an idea of what was being said here. I, 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 actually, I, I, I mustered up enough spirit-driven confidence to say that, but that's not Christianity. That's, that's actually not the gospel. That's like some form of karmic Buddhism where it's a, it's a points system. That's, man, that's slavery, How on earth will you ever know that you've done enough to get in? When do the works of the law ever stop? And for her, they didn't. 
Her mantra that she lived her life by was, when at first we don't succeed, try, try, try again. Brothers and sisters, that's not the good news of Jesus. The true gospel is why God inspired the writing of this book to free us from this kind of false teaching. And so let's just do a quick five-minute comprehensive recap. In chapter one, Paul expressed his astonishment that the Galatians were believing a gospel such as what I just shared. The gospel of Chick-fil-A, we'll call it. (laughs) Don't tell Truett Cathy that. Paul expressed his astonishment that they had already abandoned the truth of the gospel. The truth is that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, see, the true gospel puts Jesus in the driver's seat of our salvation. The true gospel is, is God-centered, God-glorifying, but, but, but what we tend to believe is this man-centered, man-glorifying thing where we put all of our focus on our performance of the laws rather than Jesus' performance and death and resurrection. I think... Jesus meant what he said on the cross. It is finished. Because there's nothing left to earn for us to have access to the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 2, Paul continued this glorious thought that our, our works do not play any part in our justification. Our works don't add to our forgiveness or right standing before God. If our works played even a little Heart, then Christ died for no purpose, he says. Since the death that Christ died was in the place of those who are unable to help themselves. Which is why in chapter 3, Paul flat out tells us that we're under a curse if we think that our works do anything more than serve as evidence of a faith that is birthed in us by the Holy Spirit. And so it really got Paul to kind of rhetorically ask, you know, what's the point of of the Old Testament law? To show us how sinful we are. To show us how in need of a Savior we are. And to show us the picture of what the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us into. That's why we have the Ten Commandments, the 613 Levitical Laws, That is the conclusive purpose of the law. The law was never intended as a ladder for us to climb on our way to self-salvation. And thinking we can earn even a little bit of the grace that God simply wants to give us results in slavery. We saw this in chapter 4 when when Paul uh, used the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. We remember that. Abraham was given a promise by God. You're going to be a father, a patriarch. A nation is is going to to rise up. And through this nation, the whole world will be blessed. And people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be redeemed. That was the promise. But God was kind of slow fulfilling his promise. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah said, well, if you sleep with this slave woman, Hagar, we can get the ball rolling a little bit on this whole promise. And we don't necessarily have to wait for God. And so what happened is uh, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Hagar had a son, but that son wasn't born to the free woman. He was, he was born a slave. 
And the whole purpose of Paul showing us this is that when we try to earn what God simply wants to give us, the result is slavery. But God wants us to be free, which is the entire point of chapter 5. He wants us to be free from works of the law. Not having to earn our righteousness. No, 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 no. We will walk in righteousness, but Jesus has already earned it for us. Not having to, he wants us to be free from, from, the, from the works of the flesh. Just chasing our desires off to every pleasure and passion and, and, and whimmy. That's another form of slavery. It's slavery when we try to earn grace. It's slavery when we turn and abuse grace. And that is essentially a survey of the first five chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, in chapter 6, verses 11 through 18, Paul is circling back around to address the main issue that he has been addressing ever since chapter 1. And one last time, he makes his plea. I love verse 11. He rips the pen out of the scribe's hand. Who is, he, Paul was probably dictating this letter, and a scribe is writing it down. And Paul's like, give me that. And he writes it in really, really big letters, in huge letters, and in no uncertain terms. Paul, if I could give you a paraphrase, writes this. Stop with the show. Stop with the audition, Judaizers and Galatians. Stop with the packaging and presenting yourselves for the world's approval and for God's approval. Verse 12, it is those who want a make, to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Because see, the simple gospel is not religious enough for the hyper-religious people who want to earn their way to heaven. Verse 13, but even those who are circumcised, they do not themselves keep the whole law. Paul has, Paul has proven this again and again in this letter. The law is a death trap. It wasn't intended for us. We weren't even, we, 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 we're not able to keep it. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The Judaizers were boasting in the number of converts they could collect to their brand of Christianity. And the Galatians with the Judaizers were boasting in their efforts to earn God's approval through their pious works of the law. All of them, all of the churchmen and women in the, Gal in, in the Galatian churches were boasting in an identity that was not rooted in the true gospel. It, rather, it was, it was an identity built upon their earthly reputations and possessions. Who might that sound like? me Paul had a boast of his own too Pastor Ronnie rightly said in our liturgy we're, we're, all, we're all boasting in something 
Paul had an identity that he relished and gloried in. It was a new identity as a completely new creature, a new creation, not built upon earthly riches or repute, but instead built upon the magnificent, merciful cross of his Lord, Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, crucifixion was regarded as the shameful end of a misdirected life. And that Jesus' redemptive work would lead to a cross was so offensive to the Jews and it was utterly foolish to the Gentiles. But for Paul, the cross of Christ was the very manifestation of the power of God to bring salvation for his people. The cross was Paul's pride and joy. And him being crucified with Christ, crucified to the world, meant that the world held no attraction for him. And he probably wasn't too attractive in the eyes of the world either. He wasn't auditioning for the approval of those around him all the time. He wasn't enslaved, corrupted, by the works, the sowing, the sowing, the reaping of the flesh, building up this little tiny temporal kingdom. He was solely fixated on the eternal kingdom brought about by the Spirit of God purchased for us by the cross of Christ. So as we come to the end of this wonderful, wonderful letter, we must know that its main message is not this. It is not stop being legalistic. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. It's also not stop being licentious. Stop running into all of the passions and pleasures of the world where you will not find satisfaction. That's not the main thrust of this letter. The main thrust of this letter is start Boasting in the cross. To boast in the cross is to boast in this certainty revealed to us by Scripture that God did not need any single one of us to make himself complete. He did not look upon us from his heavenly throne and say, I am just unraveled without this person in my life. I must have them in my kingdom. He saw nothing in us that would have been motivating for him to come to us. He came. The cross exists. Jesus died because he wanted you. And because I'm in Christ, he, want, he wanted me. Let that truth reverberate in your spirit. Let it settle in your gut that you and I, sinners and rebels, alienated from God by our own self-reliant religion and self-centered pleasure-seeking, we had no claim on God. There was nothing in us that God needed for his own completeness because ever since forever... He has been fully complete, whole and full in goodness and glory with the threeness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He quenched his own every need 
If God were to somehow have needed us, it means that he would have been lacking or incomplete, that he somehow isn't the all-sufficient, unlimited, infinite being that the Bible paints him as. Uh, paints him as what Paul is, I believe, screaming to us at the end of this letter is that, sinner, you have now been made a new creation into a saint, plainly and simply because Jesus has done everything to make you such. He lived the perfect life that you did not and that I did not. He died the death that we deserved because of our rebellion. He was buried in a tomb that had my name on the plaque as well as yours, but he rose to life. And he said, trust in that. Trust in the completed work of Christ crucified and resurrected. Boasting in the cross means finding that all of our actual wealth is in that story is in that identity. It frees us up then to be generous in the spirit like Paul wrote about in verses six through 10. Boasting in the cross means living without shame in our weaknesses. Now that's, it's different than, than, than being convicted. We ought to be convicted by weaknesses that we are willingly embracing or sins that we are willingly embracing, but there is no condemnation, there is no shame, and therefore for the people of God, those who are united to Jesus by faith, we can be freed up to be honest with one another. We can be freed up to be actually be vulnerable with one another, humble and gentle, during the passing of the peace, you know, it doesn't have to be that my life is perfect because I don't sin and neither do my kids. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that. There can be a, 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 a rawness, a fearlessness, because if on the cross Jesus has justified me, well, then who on earth can condemn me? Boasting in the cross means living without fear of God's condemnation. Look, so many of us, your mornings either begin with arrogance or guilt. Arrogance that you were holy enough to wake up at 5.30 and read your Bible or guilt because you weren't holy enough that day. And if you're like me, the pendulum of my life just is constantly in ebb and flow based upon my performance, and we need to preach the gospel to one another. Look to Christ, and he earned a perfect track record on your behalf, and now that you are united with him by faith, those medals are pinned to your chest. God sees the righteousness of Christ over top of you, and now in great joy, not out of some sense of, of guilt, not out of a sense of obligation, in great joy, we get to awake and we get to feast on the word of God when we wake up in the morning. Not to check a box, but to open up our hearts. This is boasting in the cross. What I hope to leave us with is a sense of liberation, church. For any of you who are walking through that job interview right now, Christianity is not that. What I hope is to leave a sense of liberation that you and I, as Paul wrote to the Galatians and the Judaizers, we can stop the act, especially around our brothers and sisters 
in Christ, we can be freed from the pressure of constantly packaging and presenting ourselves to the people around us, vying for their affection. We can stop packaging and presenting ourselves to God, hoping that what we do is enough to get us in to the kingdom of heaven. We can be freed from this incessant pursuit of earning what God simply wants to give us by grace. And then out of that, walking in the holiness and walking in the obedience and walking in the righteousness to which we've been called. Verses 16 through 18, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God, that Israel of God is loaded. The chosen children of promise given to Abraham from every tribe and tongue and nation, that is the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. You hear his annoyance? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Man, the cross was his pride and joy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, for this wonderful book that we call Galatians, that you inspired through your servant, the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, we thank you for the simplicity and beauty of its truth and ask that all of us today would hear with ears to hear this very good news, that it's not about what we have done or what we will do that earns our right standing before you, but simply trusting in the work that Jesus Christ has already accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. When we believe that Jesus has done everything needed to secure our redemption, then and only then are we saved and sealed by the Spirit. And now, God, let us go, being transformed into your likeness and walking in the very righteousness that Christ purchased our right to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen.